So, Amy, you served as CEO of the Democratic National Committee from 2014 to 2016, and I wanted to begin by talking with you about some of the work that you were involved in um, in that role during that time period. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for for having me on. I'm I'm happy to talk about the work because I think it's so important. And we always say, you know, we're the the in the most important election of our lifetime until the next one, right? So, yeah. and, um, in 2016, what we have to do, uh, you know, when you're at the DNC, your main job is preparing the committee to make sure that it's in the best strength um, financially, organizationally. Um, you know, our data, all our information, our research for um, the eventual nominee. And so that's always been kind of the, the top priority for the DNC. And then it does a lot of party business. It helps in the midterms and certainly supports the work um, to, you know, pick up seats in the House and Senate and down ballot. Uh, but a lot of what we did is make sure that we were organizing so that state parties had an infrastructure to build strong coordinated campaigns mm-hmm. on the ground that our data and voter file was up to date and made sure that we had all the information and working with all the candidates to make sure they had the information they needed to kind of move forward. You want to make sure you're in the best possible position um, in the general election and then certainly putting together a great convention that kind of jumps starts mm-hmm. and moves you into that. Yeah, yeah. And so 2014 to 2016, I, I think that was an interesting period in American political mm-hmm. history because of sort of the undercurrents and movements that were really fomenting during that time and that we've kind of gotten a clearer window into now, I think, looking back retrospectively. And I wonder, in your estimation, what were some of the key pressing challenges for you when you stepped into that role at the the DNC during that time? Well, I think one of the big challenges is always resources and having enough. When I started, we were $20 million in debt. So trying to run program and keep things moving forward while you're also trying to get rid of a debt, which was definitely a winning debt, and we're very happy that, that uh, the President won, uh, Obama won re-election in 2012, but that was one of the big challenges, and I think that what we're mm-hmm. finding is there's just a sense out there about trying to get um, more people registered as Democrats, trying to get people to support, you know, mm-hmm. um, candidates, and, and I think in a time where people are increasingly sometimes identifying as independents, or you see Pew polls say that people you know, are rejecting institutions or, you know, trying to get a sense of how you can show people that the party shares your values mm-hmm. and, you know, is certainly a place to go if you if you want to, um, you know, be involved. And then also just, you know, fighting against, you know, apathy or people who don't get involved, don't vote, and don't, you know, become um, activists and try to, to make mm-hmm. a difference. You've seen a real scourge of that after the 2016 election, and I, and I think that, any good, strong, you know, um, organization, including the party, has to have a two-way communication to sustain that. Mm-hmm. Right. And so in terms of sustenance and, and the fate of the party moving forward, we're just a bit away from the very highly anticipated midterm elections. Right. And, right. you know, there's a lot of banter about whether we're going to witness um, kind of massive shakeup on the political stage and I'm just curious, what are you keeping an eye on during these midterm elections? And yeah, what do you interpret as kind of the valence of the American people, right? What, what do they want at this time? Right, and I think that's really important. Well, first of all, I'm cautiously optimistic. I, I'm mm-hmm. never, you know, overly confident about anything because there's a hard work, a lot of hard work between now and Election Day. Oh, we've right. got that. First of all, I just look at the numbers. We have the numbers to take back the House. 
a narrower margin in the Senate, but we need 23 seats in the House. And what you see is you've got a situation where, um, you know, there's a lot of those are toss-up seats. A lot of those are mm -hmm. retirements on the House side. But the things that I really look at, you know, as an operative, as somebody who's been through midterm elections before, is, um, you know, the popularity of the president. Uh, we've got a tradition that, you know, if uh, the parties lost seats in 35 of the last, I think, 38 elections since the Civil War, when the approval, president's approval was been under, you know, um, 50. And, like, recently, I think the last thing I saw about Trump's approval was 40%. So you see a historical trend that if, if there's a low, you know, um, popularity mm -hmm. for the president, there's that ability to try and pick up seats. And um, usually, I think, uh, on average, under 50 approval, they, the party in power has lost an average of 40 seats. And then, you know, in the House, five seats in the Senate. When you're looking to get two seats in the Senate, 23 mm -hmm. seats in the House, that's one of the things you look at. And then I think intensity. Um, you know, do they strongly approve, strongly disapprove? Uh, you have to look at the congressional ballot, um, generic poll, you know, and that's the last three I've seen, it was a plus seven favoring Democrats. So these are some of the numbers you look at. Um, independence and how we talked a little bit about, you know, the increase in independence and how they perform. Trump's approval rating with independence is only 34%. We've got mm -hmm. a lot more retirements on the Republican side than on the Democratic side on the House. Um, and then I think, you know, like I said, the maps and what you need. But, but the Senate is much more, you know, difficult. You've got three Republican seats that are in toss-up, Arizona, mm -hmm. Nevada, Tennessee. But I think what we're looking at is, you know, what – and a lot of those that are Dem defending, and a lot of those mm -hmm. were Trump, um, you know uh, – States in the 2016 election. So some of that you look at the numbers, but then you also look at the activism. You look at like what's happening out there with the candidates, and that's I think why I'm excited from my perspective because there's more women running than ever before. Mm -hmm. I know we are going to elect more women than we ever have in the history. Um, a real more diverse group of uh, mm -hmm. candidates out there, and I think that between that and the unpopularity of the president, we're going to see an ability, and we have an opportunity to really change the face of the Congress here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and great point you bring up about women. I, you know, I understand a lot of your career has focused on bringing women into the fold of politics. You were part of the National Foundation of Women Legislators very early in your career, and, you know, you served as the executive director of Emily's List. And can you talk a bit about your interest in this intersection of gender and politics? What do you, what do you think remain as the key issues or setbacks that prevent more women from entering the space? Well, I think some of them are, are, are structural. I think some of them are, are, you know, dynamics that, you know, Emily's List was founded because they didn't feel that the party infrastructure supported women running, um, disadvantages with fundraising, sometimes disadvantages with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, support from uh, traditional power sources. But I also think it's, it's I do think for many women, um, it's just their interest in running, or they, we always say they have to be asked several times, or them making sure that there's a support network that, you know, will help them. I think in this new age, you know, as well, um, uh, it's how, how can you run and either support a family or support yourself, you know, when um, it's, it's often expensive to run, and, you know, what are your personal, um, uh, you know, setbacks as well. Sometimes mm -hmm. the environment that can be toxic, too, can be a distractor. But my sense has always been when women see women like themselves serving in office, they're more likely to say, I can do that as well. And so mm -hmm. my goal, you know, in my career has been to work for women, to work for organizations that help, 
you know, encourage women to run so that they can run. And, you know, when you see a really diverse set of faces in Congress that are women from all backgrounds, um, from, you know, different, um, uh, you know, communities of color, this will get more people thinking, I can do that, you know, I can support that. And so I've, you know, for a long time supported um, organizations and worked at places that empower women to help make those decisions. And it's not mm-hmm. just women running for elected office. We need more women um, in leadership positions uh, as operatives running campaigns, as, as operatives, you know, running some of these elected um, offices. And, you know, we also look at women as activists and in a voting block. So all of those mm-hmm. together, I think, can really change, you know, how how women will be represented, um, you know, after Election Day this year.